0: Asleep with Gina Marie. Hello, I'm Gina. And Marie, hmm, well, if you know this podcast, you know about Marie. Welcome to all of you. I got a comment from a listener this week who wanted me to add another, (laughs) another group to our list of listeners. You know, slumberers, uh, um, gardeners, etc. Well, students, that's what he wanted me to add. This gentleman is currently studying certain classic authors and their works, and he often checks in with us. Thank you for that, and thanks to all of you for your likes, your very kind reviews, and for subscribing. October is behind us. This week, we are trading in our Creepy restaurateurs, our, what else? Oh, grave robbers, our ghosts, even the romantic ghosts, Ugh. for a friendly, or was it friendly, French village. Our author, hmm, he actually wrote 39 horror stories, but I promise you, we are tapping him for a gentler tale today. He was a novelist, a poet, a playwright, and a journalist. In addition to earning the wonderful title of the father of the modern short story, he is Guy de Maupassant. Oh, one of his most lauded stories is The Necklace. And we did it some time ago. It's available on Fast Asleep, episode number 120. Well, born of nobility on his father's side, it was because of his mother's influence that Mr. Maupassant developed his great love of literature. She read to him constantly. He was of great influence to some of our finest authors, William Somerset Maugham, Henry James, oh and O. Henry, (laughs) and one other you might be a little bit familiar with, Stephen King. Remember, I said Guy wrote 39 horror stories. Well, it was his horror story entitled The Inn that inspired Mr. King to write The Shining. I loved reading that book. And I gotta say, sorry, I wasn't that impressed with the movie. Well, it is Maupassant's horror stories that sadly many have said actually show the progression of his developing mental illness. And that illness came about as a result of syphilis. He contracted it in his 20s. Bad things can happen in your 20s. Um, Guy de Maupassant died in Paris after a suicide attempt just 18 months before. He was only 43 years old. Well, on a more positive note, only Shakespeare surpasses this author in film adaptations. Even Gene Roddenberry borrowed from him. Hey, let's do some borrowing ourselves from 1883. Tuck in, everybody. For Guy de Montbeuil's a piece of string Perdre le fil de temps de t'élevant ne voir plus rien à craindre, mais craindre qu'à tout moment au fil de l'eau. It was market day, and from all the country round Goudaville, the peasants and their wives were coming toward the town. The men walked slowly, throwing the whole body forward at every step of their long, crooked legs. They were deformed. From pushing the plow, which makes the left shoulder higher and bends their figures sideways. From reaping the grain, when they have to spread their legs so as to keep on their feet. Their starched blue blouses, glossy as though varnished ornamented at collar and cuffs with a little embroidered design and blown out around their bony bodies looked very much like balloons about to soar whence issued two arms and two feet some of these fellows dragged a cow or a calf at the end of a rope and just behind the animal followed their wives beating it over the back with a leaf-covered branch to hasten its pace and carrying large baskets out of which protruded the heads of chickens or ducks. These women walked more quickly and energetically than the men with their erect, dried-up Figures adorned with scanty little shawls pinned over their flat bosoms and their heads wrapped round with a white cloth enclosing the hair and surmounted by a cap. Now a charabang, a wagon with benches, passed by, jogging along behind a nag and shaking up strangely the two men on the seat, and the woman at the bottom of the cart, who held fast to its sides to lessen the hard jolting. In the marketplace at Goudaville was a great crowd, a mingled multitude of men and beasts, the horns of the cattle, the high, long-napped hats of wealthy peasants, the headdresses of the women came to the surface of that sea. And the sharp, shrill, barking voices made a continuous wild din, while above it occasionally rose a huge burst of laughter from the sturdy lungs of a merry peasant, or a prolonged bellow from a cow tied fast to the wall of a house. It all smelled of the stable of milk, of hay, and of perspiration, giving off that half-human, half-animal odor, which is peculiar to country folks. Matra Ushkorn of Briuti had just arrived at Goudaville and was making his way toward the square when he perceived... On the ground, a little piece of string. Matra Ushkorn, economical, as are all true Normans, reflected that everything was worth picking up, which could be of any use. And he stooped down, but painfully, because he suffered from rheumatism. He took the bit of thin string from the ground and was carefully preparing to roll it up when he saw Matra Malanda, the harness maker, on his doorstep staring at him. Oh, they had once had a quarrel about a halter and they had borne each other malice ever since. Matruushkorn Ushkorn was overcome with a sort of shame at being seen by his enemy picking up a bit of string in the road. He quickly hid it beneath his blouse and then slipped it into his breeches pocket, then pretended to be uh, still looking for something on the ground, which he did not discover, and finally went off toward the marketplace. His head bent forward and his body almost doubled in two by rheumatic pains. He was at once lost in the crowd, which kept moving about slowly and noisily as it chaffered, haggled, and bargained. The peasants examined the cows, went off, came back, always in doubt for fear of being cheated, never quite daring to decide looking the seller square in the eye in the effort to discover the tricks of the man and the defect in the beast the women having placed their great baskets at their feet had taken out the poultry which lay upon the ground their legs tied together with terrified eyes and scarlet combs they listened to the propositions, maintaining their prices in a decided manner with an impassive face, or perhaps deciding to accept the smaller price offered, suddenly calling out to the customer who was starting to go away, Oh, all right, I'll let you have them, man. auntie? Then, little by little, The square became empty, and when the Angelus, the church bells, struck midday, those who lived at a distance poured into the inns. At Chordas, the great room was filled with eaters, just as the vast court was filled with vehicles of every sort, wagons, gigs, charabancs. Tilburys, two-wheeled carriages, innumerable vehicles which have no name, yellow with mud, misshapen, pieced together, raising their shafts to heaven like two arms, or it may be with their nose on the ground and their rear in the air. Just opposite to where the diners were at table, the huge fireplace, with its bright flame, gave out a burning heat on the backs of those who sat at the right. Three spits were turning, loaded with chickens, with pigeons, and with joints of mutton, and a delectable odor of roast meat and of gravy flowing over crisp brown skin arose From the hearth, kindled merriment, caused mouths to water. Ah, All the aristocracy of the plow were eating there. At Mes the innkeepers, a dealer in horses also, and a sharp fellow who had made a great deal of money in his day. The dishes were passed around were emptied, as were the chugs of yellow cider. Everyone told of his affairs, of his purchases, and his sales. They exchanged news about the crops. The weather was good for greens, but too wet for grain. Suddenly, the drum began to beat in the courtyard before the house. Everyone, except some of the most indifferent, was on their feet at once and ran to the door, to the windows, their mouths full and napkins in their hand. When the public crier had finished his tattoo, he called forth in a jerky voice, pausing in the wrong places. Be it known to the inhabitants of Goodaville, and in general to all persons present at the market that there has been lost this morning on the Bouzeville Road between nine and 10 o'clock, a black leather pocketbook containing 500 francs and business papers. You are requested to return it to the mayor's office at once or to matra Fortun old of Manaville. There will be twenty francs reward. The man went away. They heard once more at a distance the dull beating of the drum and the faint voice of the crier. And then they all began to talk of this incident, reckoning up the chances which matre Brec had of finding, or not finding, his pocketbook again. The meal went on. They were finishing their coffee when the corporal of Gendarme appeared on the threshold. He asked... Is Matra Ushkorn of Briuti here? Matra Ushkorn, seated at the other end of the table, answered, uh, uh, Here I am. Here, here I am. And he followed the corporal. The mayor was waiting for him, seated in an armchair. He was the notary of the place, a tall, grave man, of Pompous speech. Matra Lustkorn," said he, "this morning on the Bouzaville road, you were seen to pick up the pocket book lost by Matra Brec of Manaville. The countryman looked at the mayor in amazement. Frightened already at this suspicion which rested on him. He knew not why. I... uh, I picked up that pocketbook? Yes, you... Stay with us, we'll be right back. I... I picked up that book? Yes, you. Oh, I swear I, I don't even know anything about it. You were seen. I, I was seen. Who, who saw me? Amelanda, the hor- harness maker. Then, the old man remembered, understood, and reddening with anger said, "Ah." Oh, He saw me, did he, the rascal? He saw me picking up this string here, Monsieur Le Maire. And fumbling at the bottom of his pocket, he pulled out of it the little end of string. But the mayor incredulously shook his head. Ho, 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 you will not make me believe, Matra Ushkorn, that M. Malanda, is a man whose word can be relied on, has mistaken this string for a pocket book. The peasant, furious, raised his hand and spat on the ground beside him as if to attest his good faith, repeating, For all that, it is God's truth, Monsieur le Maire, there on my soul's salvation. I repeat it. The mayor continued. After you picked up the object in question, you even looked about for some time in the mud to see if a piece of money had not dropped out of it. Oh, the good man was choking with indignation and fear. How can they tell? How can they tell such lies as that to slander and Honest man! How can they? His protestations were in vain. He was not believed. He was confronted with M. Malanda, who repeated and sustained his testimony. Oh, they railed at one another for an hour. At his own request, Matra Ushkorn was searched Nothing was found on him. At last, the mayor, much perplexed, sent him away, warning him that he would inform the public prosecutor and ask for orders. The news had spread. When he left the mayor's office, The old man was surrounded interrogated with a curiosity which was serious or mocking as the case might be but into which no indignation entered and he began to tell the story of the string they did not believe him They laughed. He passed on, buttonholed by everyone, himself buttonholing his acquaintances, beginning over and over again, his tale and his protestations, showing his pockets turned inside out to prove that he had nothing in them. They said to him, Yeah, you old rogue. He grew more and more angry, feverish, in despair at not being believed, and kept on telling his story. Ah, the night came. It was time to go home. He left with three of his neighbors, to whom he pointed out the place, where he had picked up the string and all the way he talked of his adventure. That evening, he made the round of the village of Briotti for the purpose of telling everyone. He met only unbelievers. He brooded over it all night long. The next day, about one in the afternoon, Marius Pommel, a farmhand of Matra-Brotan, the market gardener at Imoville, returned the pocketbook and its contents to Matre obrec of Manaville. This man said, indeed, that he had found it on the road not knowing how to read. He had carried it home and had given it to his master. The news spread to the environs. Matra Ushkorn was informed. He started off at once and began to relate his story with the denouement. He was triumphant. Ah, what grieved me said he, was not the thing itself, do you understand, but it was being accused of lying. Nothing does you so much harm as being in disgrace for lying. All day he talked of his adventure. He told it on the roads to the people who passed, at the cabaret to the people who drank, and next Sunday when they came out of the church. He even stopped strangers to tell them about it. (sighs) Ah. He was easy now and yet something worried him without his knowing exactly what it was. People had a joking manner while they listened. They did not seem convinced. He seemed to feel their remarks behind his back. On Tuesday of the following week, he went to market at Goudaville, prompted solely by the need of mm, telling his story. Malanda, standing on his doorstep, began to laugh as he saw him pass. Why? He accosted a farmer of Cricateau. Who did not let him finish, and giving him a punch in the pit of the stomach, cried in his face, Oh, you great rogue! And then he turned his heel upon him. Matra Ushkorn remained speechless and grew more and more uneasy. Why had they called him great rogue? When seated at table in Chardin's tavern, He began again to explain the whole affair. A dealer, a horse dealer of Montevillier shouted at him Get out get out, you old scamp. I know all about your old string. Ushorn stammered but since they've found it again the pocketbook. But the other continued Ah. Hold your tongue, Daddy. There's one who finds it, and there's another who returns it. And no one the wiser. The farmer was speechless. He understood at last. They accused him of having had the pocketbook brought back by an accomplice by a confederate. He tried to protest. The whole table began to laugh. He could not finish his dinner and went away amid a chorus of jeers. He went home indignant, choking with rage, with confusion. The more cast down since, with his Norman craftiness, he was, perhaps, capable of having done what they accused him of, and even of boasting of it as a good trick. He was dimly conscious that it was impossible to prove his innocence, his craftiness being so well known he felt himself struck to the heart by the injustice of the suspicion. He began anew to tell his tale, lengthening his recital every day, each day adding new proofs, more energetic declarations, and more sacred oaths which he thought of, which he prepared in his hours of solitude for his mind was entirely occupied with the story of the string. The more he denied it, the more artful his arguments, the less he was believed. Those are liars' proofs," they said behind his back. He felt this. It preyed upon him, and he exhausted himself in useless efforts. He was visibly wasting away. Jokers would make him tell the story of the piece of string to amuse themselves just as you make a soldier who has been on a campaign tell his story of the battle. His mind kept growing weaker. And about the end of December, he took to his bed. He passed away. Early in January, and in the ravings of death's agony, he (laughs) protested his innocence, repeating A little bit of string, a little bit of string. See, here it is, Monsieur Le Maire. Introduction information for this episode is from The Thought Company, biography of Guy de Maupassant, father of the short story, by Esther Lombardi. Music this week is L'Onde Amer by Kiron Anne, Por Sempre y Sempre Insieme by La Palade, Orinoco Flow by Cynthia Garcia, The Old Rocking Chair by Zazenkai, Loneliness by Martin Zerny, Chapel by Moonlight Echoes, and finally, Death. Zerny. Remember, you can always reach me at Fast Asleep with Gina Marie44 at gmail.com, or you can find me on Instagram, Facebook, and TikTok. And please keep us here for you by commenting. Liking and with your subscriptions. Thank you for listening. Key word pocketbook. Good night.